at the 2017 Masters Indoor Track and Field Championships. Orville Rogers there on closest to me was racing, he's 99, was racing against the youngster, Dixon Hemphill, who's only age 92. Look at the finish. It was a photo finish. Orville Smith, age 99, won the championship. They interviewed him afterwards and they said, what was your secret to winning this race? And he said, the secret was, I just kept my eyes on the finish line. It's a pretty good little life motto right there, not just for racing, um, regardless of your age, but for living. So, hey, uh, good morning. My name is Brian. Really glad to be with you today. And um, uh, we've been going through this series called Phases, where we've been looking at every phase of life. And we've talked about children and teens and young to middle life, adult age. And today we're talking about um, that age when you're feeling like you're getting a little bit older. And some of you are there. In fact, if you don't know if you're considered old or not, just ask the person next to you. Go and take a moment. They'll be honest with you, I'm sure. Isn't, it's a funny thing, though, right? Like, I'm thinking of Dixon Hemphill on this race. They're like, are you old? He's like, no, that Orville, he's seven years older than me. There's always somebody older, right? There's always somebody just a little bit that we know. So we're always not quite there. But um, one of the, the real goals that we've had through this series is that we as a church family could speak to people in every phase of life. So if you feel like you're in that place of senior adult life, we want to let God's word speak to you today. But we also want to speak to the whole church. If you're a younger adult, a younger person, then we want to look at how can we as a church family love people in that phase of life. And so this sermon is for everybody. It's for all of us today. And I believe God has something that he wants to say to all of us. Um, I, I'm in this funny phase of life where um, some things I can do like I used to do, and some things I can do better than I used to. And just, it was, I, was, I was writing this sermon, actually, last Monday. I did the most push-ups I've ever done in my life, and I was feeling a, maybe a little cocky about that. And the next day, I was lifting a bag to put it on a shelf, and I heard my shoulder pop. <laughs> and I was like, okay, here's the phase of life I am, where sometimes I feel like a young adult, and sometimes I feel like not such a young adult. And it can all be like within a matter of moments in my life right now. And I thought, okay, in 30 years, I won't be setting any personal push-up records, but I'll still be hearing my shoulder pop, and I'll be using two hands to get that bag up onto the shelf, and maybe calling for help, and that's part of aging, isn't it? Our bodies begin to tell us, you're getting a little bit older, buddy, and you might want to be a little bit careful with this. And, and, and so I had somebody tell me the other day, uh, who's friends of ours, and you've probably heard this said before, they said, Brian, getting old is no picnic. Have you heard that one before? It's not. It's difficult. And uh, I, I was thinking, we can all just blame Adam and Eve for this. It's their fault. When your shoulder pops, it's Adam and Eve's fault. Um, when, you, when you need help, when you feel bad, it's Adam and Eve's fault. When it hurts to get out of bed, when you have to stretch before you brush your teeth, it's Adam and Eve's fault, okay? <laughs> but the truth is, if Adam and Eve would not have sinned, then I would have been the one to blow it eventually. Somebody was going to sin, and when sin entered our world, this thing called aging took on a whole new ugly turn for us. I was thinking about the hardships of aging, and it's it's easy to think about the physical hardships because they're so visible and so easy to see. But I don't want us to only think about those. 
I was thinking about my grandfather who outlived all of his siblings and all of his friends. I mean, that's a lot of grief to bear. And some of you are feeling like you're at this phase where you've just attended way too many funerals for your loved ones. Another issue with aging is just loneliness. Because when the people who used to be close with you aren't still on this planet anymore, or maybe are having their own medical issues, you begin to feel lonely. And maybe it's fear. Fear creeps in. The world that seems to change by the hour is difficult. There's all of these different challenges. But with all of those challenges, I have some really good news for you today. In fact, my plea for you this morning is to believe what God says. It's really that simple. And so I want to read to you what God says. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 92, and then in a minute we're going to go back to Genesis 18. But um, in Psalm 92, there is this incredible passage, and I think you should highlight it, underline it, and memorize it. It's just so good. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. I'm going to read this to you. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, so the famous tree. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Did you catch that? They will still bear fruit in old age. And I want to ask those who are younger, do you believe that about the older generation? that God has called them and will still bear fruit through them. And if you feel like you're in that older generation, I want to ask you, do you believe God's word or not? Because if you believe God's word, he says, the righteous, even in their old age, will still bear fruit. There's still work for you to do. In our culture, oftentimes uh, our culture says, as you get older, you become less valuable. And it's not only a problem for younger people to believe that, it's a problem for older people to believe that. But we are the church, and so we trust what the Bible says more than what culture teaches us. And so as a church, we value people from the womb to the tomb. The whole way, the church says you are of value. We care for you, and God has a plan for your life. And so, as I mentioned earlier, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 18, we want to come to this story. God had promised Abraham, you may remember, that his descendants would number as many as the stars in the sky. I don't know if you've looked on a dark night, but there's a lot of stars in the sky. And so God had said, Abraham, you're going to have all of these descendants. And yet, initially, he gave Abraham no clue or proof of how it would happen. It was a promise. But Abraham had no idea how it was going to happen. And if you go back and read more of the story, Abraham did not always wait patiently for God to deliver the promise. But at the time of this story, uh, Abraham is 99 years old, as old as Orville, who, who won the race. And Sarah, depending on her birthday, was either 89 or 90 years old. And so they're assuming that that they're done having kids, and they don't really know what to do with God's promise. And three guests show up to their home. And uh, there's a little bit of mystery around these three guests, um, but we know that the Lord is amongst them. 
And so the Lord and maybe two angels or three angels on behalf of the Lord, uh, but these three guests show up, and it's the Lord speaking to them, and they realize this. And um, uh, Genesis 18, uh, verse 9, is where I kind of want to pick up in the middle of this story. They said to Abraham, Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yeah, you did. <laughs> you did laugh. You know, Sarah's trying to cover her tracks here because she laughed. And you can't hardly blame her. That when you hear something that sounds so crazy, something like, you know there's no way you can have a child, and yet God says, you're going to have a child. And now all of a sudden, I'm kind of ready for Christmas, aren't you? That God does the impossible, even for the woman who says there's no way I can have a child. And he comes and does something miraculous. And we should never laugh at God, because as the person, as the guest says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And maybe that's a question that you just need to wrestle with. For whatever thing in your life you're laughing at God or you're doubting God or you're saying there's no way God can do this, I want to ask you, is there anything impossible for the Lord? And sure enough, Sarah, a year later, gives birth. And she names him Isaac, which means he laughs. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. So Sarah goes from laughing at God and this crazy promise to laughing with her family and her friends at God's provision, at God's goodness. Don't you want to be on that side of the laughter, of seeing how God did the impossible? And Sarah and Abraham learned this lesson, that God can still do what he wants to do, even in your old age. I had a friend recently tell me, I can't do as much physically anymore but I can pray. And I've thought about that, and I've wondered if at this point in my friend's life, if he isn't more valuable to the kingdom than he has ever been, because he prays. I have another friend from Los Angeles who wrote, um, and he's, he's been through a, uh, a stroke over the last 18 months. He was in the hospital, and they told him he would probably never get out of the hospital. And he spent his whole life caring uh, for uh, many of the people kind of on the outskirts of society, people that were often ignored. And his goal is to, to make disciples and to plant small churches, and he's done that his whole life. And just yesterday he wrote, um, I am called to make disciples, and it's what I continue to do. And you may not know this, but when I was in the hospital bed, I made disciples. There were, there were 20 people I was able to share my faith with in the hospital. And now that I'm in my wheelchair, I can't do everything I used to do, but I can still share the gospel, and I'm making disciples of the homeless because I can roll up to them and talk to them, and they'll listen to me. 
and he, said, he, he realizes that his best days aren't all behind him, that he can still bear fruit. It may be different than what it used to be. It may look different. It may be more frustrating. It may be more difficult, but he still sees himself right in the middle of God's plan for his life. If you were hiking on the famed Appalachian Trail and you came up to somebody uh, and you met them on the trail and began talking and they asked you, hey, how far have you been hiking? And you said, I've been going for 20 miles. They might say, well, that's, that's really great. And if you said, how long have you been on the trail? And they said, oh, I've been, I've been going about 200 miles. Wow. You've been going 200 miles? You would have more respect for that person because they're farther down the trail than you. You would assume that they know some stuff about the trail that you don't know. You would assume that you could learn some stuff from them. But in our culture, we, for some reason, we think if you're farther down the trail, you're of less value. And that's getting it completely backwards. Instead, we should look at people who are farther down the trail and say, what can I learn from you? You must know a lot. And oh, by the way, we also might want to say, can I help you? I bet you're a little tired. It ought to work both ways, loving each other. So I want to talk to both groups. I, I want to, just for a moment, talk to all of you who feel like maybe you're in the younger crowd, that you aren't quite to the older crowd yet. And again, I realize now I'm talking to everybody. But just pretend that maybe there's a few other people here that might consider themselves a little bit, a little bit older. And I really want to talk to us as a church about how can we love people, regardless of your age, young or old, how can we love people who are senior adults, who are older, who are, are maybe facing some of these aging issues. And I want to just give you four practical points um, a couple of them are going to go by really fast, but this first one is this. Slow down. Just slow down. If you want to care for someone who's aging, slow down. You can't go running past them. Listen and sit and walk slowly. Roseanne Dunson shared a story with me, and I got permission from her and the other person involved to read this to you. She wrote, one of the things that older people miss the most, I think, is being seen as a real person with memories of their jobs and children growing up, their spouses. Younger people seem to forget that they were someone. They just tend to see an old, forgetful, crippled person. In my mom's last few years, when she was able to be at church, she was feeble, her vision was bad, and she could barely hear. Most Sundays, she would make her way slowly to the downstairs lobby while she waited for Dave and me to finish up our responsibilities and take her home. It always made me sad because I remember her days of being the minister's wife and greeting people in our churches. One Sunday, I walked out to the lobby. Neil Trotter, one of our deacons, was sitting next to my mom. They were deep in conversation. He'd grown up near where she lived in western Oklahoma, and he was listening to her stories of the Dust Bowl days. I remember that she hardly wanted to leave. She could talk, she just kept talking about that young man, and it was a great week. See, somebody, Neil, had seen her as a person. He had taken the time to just slow down. The second thing that you can do to love those who are aging is to serve. And this one's just really simple. It's to serve. If you've been on the trail for 200 miles, then your legs are probably a little tired. They're probably a little dinged up. You probably twisted your ankle at some point. 
and you probably need some help with just some physical things. And so I want to, don't, you don't have to think too hard about it, just serve. Find someone who's aging and find a way to serve them. I think one of the most practical uh, reasons to have multi-generational small groups is this one. Because I, I love seeing where a small group of people where the older can give advice and wisdom and care and love and time to the younger generation, and the younger generation can practically, physically serve. It just makes sense. It's why God created families this way. You know, if, if your family was all just one age, you know, you would be really foolish when you were young and in a lot of trouble when you're really old, right? It, it just makes sense. Number three, ask advice. I think maybe one of the greatest ways just to build a relationship with someone who's aging is to say, hey, help me out here. Talk to me about marriage. How do I get through this? Talk to me about raising a child. Or talk to me about work. How did you balance work and family? Ask advice. And the fourth one, this one feels a little bit bigger because it entails lots of stuff, but it's important, and it's this. To be proactive to bridge generational gaps. I love that our tribe of churches, the Restoration Movement, is doing some things real proactively to try to connect uh, seasoned ministry leaders and younger ministry leaders and getting them together. That's so important in the church. Um, And a, a guy named, a preacher named Tyler McKenzie recently wrote an article talking some about this, and he, he said this, I have come to discover few things cause more squabbles, resentment, sanctimoniousness and division in the American church than the gap between generations, particularly millennials versus boomers. Many churches focus on reaching millennials at the expense of the boomers who built it. Many others allow boomers to institutionalize tired methods at the expense of an increasingly apathetic generation of millennials. Can I pause for one second and point out two commercials I've heard in Tulsa? over the last, one of them over the last couple of weeks, one of them over the last couple of years. There, I've, heard, I've heard two different churches market this way. One of them marketed, we're not your grandma's church. To be honest, I find offense at that. I, I get it. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not judging their hearts. I don't think it was out of ill intent. But I think the practical reality of that was saying, like, your grandma's church doesn't have it right, and we're better than that one. I don't know that's God's intent for the church's unity unless we're just thinking about our one little group right here. But I've also recently begun to hear a commercial that says, we don't have all of those fancy lights and fog machines and this and that. We're just an old-fashioned church. Come be with us. And I find it to be just the opposite of the other, saying, we're better than they are. Those people have it all wrong. I think as the church, we ought to be saying, like, We love them. We love the older and we love the younger because isn't that how God made us? We don't need to jump on our bunker about one more thing, do we? And draw a line and say, we are better than them. If if we are the family of God, let's act like it. Let's be together. McKenzie writes, every generation does three things. Every generation recognizes it is different than others. Every generation believes their brand of different is right. And every generation believes every other generation's brand of different is wrong. And only number one is correct. It is correct to think that the other generations are different. But the fact that I'm right and you're wrong is where we get really messed up. And he points out 
that every generation falls prey to two myths. The first is the myth of progress. The myth of progress says, we're the generation who has finally figured it all out. And if you just get on board with us, then everything will be fine for eternity. It's just all good. Come, we are the best ever. I can't believe no one ever thought of this. Just get on board. This is it. This is the greatest way. Nothing better will ever come after it. It's right here. The myth of progress. But it's a myth. But there's also the myth of the good old days. And that's what happens when we usually get a little bit older and we say, back in the good old days, everybody loved God and everybody worked really hard and everybody had their act together and all the families were fine and I could never had to lock my door and I could do this and this and this and this. And, you know, there might have been some things back in the day that were better for you. Certainly doesn't mean it was better for anybody else. And the truth is that every single generation goes through this. We just see it culturally. Every generation thinks it was a little bit better back then and, and every generation when they're young thinks it's going to get better because we're the ones who are a little bit smarter i want you to just to listen to a few quotes here's the first one they have trouble making decisions they would rather hike in the himalayas than climb the corporate ladder they crave entertainment but their attention span is as short as one zap of a tv dial time magazine said that about generation x hey that's me they said that in 1990 Here's another quote. The now generation has become the me generation. New York Times said that about boomers in 1976. Here's another one. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent upon the frivolous youth of today. That was said by Hesiod in the 8th century BC. <laughs> All the quotes are the same, aren't they? And we're still using them. We're still saying them. And we, if we just look back at history just a little bit, we realize... Okay, what we're up against today is not new. It's always going on. There will always be a cultural instinct for the generations to grow apart, especially in our culture. We see that a lot. And so as a church, we have to work against that. We have to push against the grain. As Christians, we have to push against the grain of a culture that tries to pit us against one another. You know that, that the new sites that you read online know what you click on and they send more stuff to you that's exactly like what you just clicked on did you know that did you know if you click on something on facebook the algorithms are set up to send you more stuff just like what you clicked on what does that do it gets you thinking more and more and believing like what you thought do you know that once you verbalize something to someone or you write something down it's almost impossible to change your mind that that isn't true before you voice your opinion it's quite possible that you change your mind. Once you voice your opinion publicly, it's almost impossible to change that person's mind. Why? Because we believe ourselves. And when we say something or we write something, then we want to defend it at all costs. So here's what I'm saying. Our, the news cycle and the social media and all the stuff that's swirling out there is actually designed or it's at least working practically to divide people, even generationally. And so I think as a church, we have to push against that instinct that makes us feel good to slam someone else who's different than us. We have to be loving the different. Mackenzie writes, speaking of Jesus, you know who God calls us to be? Not millennials, not boomers, not Xers. He certainly does not call us to be divided. He calls us to be family. 
So let's be a family, the family of God. What unites us spiritually is bigger than what divides us generationally. Did you catch that? What unites us spiritually is bigger than what divides us generationally. Let's bridge the generational gap. That starts with the humility to admit, we got some things right, but so do they. And the humility to admit, they got some things wrong, but so did we. And we can learn from each other and love each other. And I'm telling you, my friends, our church needs this. For this church to last, we need generations to love each other. And our community needs this. Tulsa needs for the older and the younger to love each other and to care for one another. We need this. I want to give you an action step today. And it's fairly simple, but it, it's kind of got three parts, but it's really just one big thing. And I've actually got an action step for those of you who are maybe feeling a little younger, and then I've got an action step for, one of, for those of you who are saying, yeah, I'm definitely feeling like I'm in the older crowd right now. First, to those who, who don't feel like you're quite there yet. You're getting there, but you're not there yet. I want you to pray about whom you can encourage. And I mean that. Spend some time just praying, God, would you put someone older in my mind, in my heart, whom I can encourage? Begin there. Step two, schedule a chunk of time to give that person. I don't know exactly what you'll do, but here's some ideas. You might invite them to dinner. You might visit them in a nursing home. You might rake their yard. You might go over to visit. You might welcome them in your family for a holiday meal. I don't know exactly what it will be, but it will be something with action involved. And then the third thing is just this, follow through. And when you follow through, put your phone away. Follow through, give them all of your attention and your best. I just think some beautiful things will happen because some of you will take this action step seriously. Whether you're young or old, you can follow through on this action step. And let me just give a simple action step to those who are saying, boy, I'm feeling the effects of aging. I'm feeling it right now. It's just really simple. Trust God and finish. You either trust God or you don't. You either believe God's promise that you still have work to do on this planet. You, you either believe it or you don't. God said that in your old age you can still bear fruit. So believe it. Trust it. Allow God to do something new in you. Maybe God's going to show you a way that you can pray or care or write notes or minister or encourage. I just think if you take that step and say, God, I trust you. I trust that you're not through with me yet. I'm telling you, my friends, that will make a difference. Not just in your life and not just in the life of the person whom you care for. It'll make a difference for this whole church family because what this church family, one of the things we need from every generation is to see them serving. Because when we see people who have not thrown in the towel, even in spite of life's troubles, we will be encouraged to do the same thing. And we will say, okay, I can do it too. I'm going to follow that example. That's who I want to be when I grow up. I want to be that person. In Acts chapter 20, it says this, I know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. This is Paul writing. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race 
and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Joy Johnson ran dozens and dozens of marathons. She actually ran 25 New York City marathons. The thing about Joy Johnson is she did not start running until she was age 59. That's when she started running. And she got to where she would run about three marathons um, a year. She would run 25 to 50 miles a week. And then she made quilts from all of her race shirts. And this last year, at the age of 86, she ran her 25th New York City marathon on a Saturday. She died the next day at a hospital in Manhattan. And when you talk to her family and friends, of course, they were grieving their loss. But they were filled with gratefulness. And they, I read these quotes, and they just kept saying things like, she did what she wanted to do. She went out like she wanted to. And her daughter said, Mom always said that she wanted to die with her running shoes on, and she did. Don't you want to die with your running shoes on? Don't you want to go out serving the Lord, trusting the Lord, praying, being faithful, and giving, and caring, and making a phone call and say, how can I pray for you? I'm not done yet. As long as we're still sucking air, God has something for us. And I want to go out with my running shoes on. And I want us as a church to go out with our running shoes on. We don't know if Jesus is going to come back first or we're going to breathe our final breath. We don't know which one's going to happen. But don't we want to have our running shoes on? Don't we want to still be pressing ahead for God's kingdom? Because there are still lost souls who need to be saved. There are still people who need to be uh, helped. There are still grieving who need to be comforted. There's still so much work that needs to be done. 1 Corinthians 9.23 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who com competes in these games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So we want to go on with our, we want to move with our running shoes on. That's how we want to go out. And we have a prize worth pursuing. It's not, it's not having the ultimate savings account when we retire. It's not being in the perfect health when we hit 80. The, the, those things are, are nice and fine. But our goal is to pursue Jesus Christ and his plan for us in his kingdom and the work that he's going to do. We're going to sing a song. If you would, would you stand up with me? We're going to sing a song just saying, God, I believe in you, and I believe in your word and what you've done and who you are. And if you would like someone to pray for you or pray with you, we'll have some folks on the front rows who would be glad to pray with you and talk with you. Uh, we want you to be in this race. And if you want to talk to someone later this week, you can mark that on your card in your bulletin, and we'd be glad to meet with you privately this week as well. Um, but, the, but the offer is here for you even right now if you would like to, to speak to someone about following Jesus. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your example. And as a church, we want to go out with our running shoes on. It's so easy to give up. It's easy to give up when we're young. It's easy to give up when we're old and just cash it in and wonder if anything's worth it and let the hardships of this earth bring us down. But God, we want to recommit today. 
Help us to run with passion. Help us to be content with our situation for where we are, for how we feel, for who's in our life and who's not. Lord, we, we want to give our best to you. And so for anyone who's not walking with you, who's not running with you today, we pray that they would hear your call. In Jesus' name, amen.